if you had the, the passage from Titus that's on page 969 open in front of you as we uh, take our next step in our journey looking at the grace that transforms. In the first week, we looked at Jesus, the man of grace and truth from John chapter 1. Then two weeks before, two weeks ago, we looked at the grace that justifies, that because of grace we are declared innocent. There is no condemnation for us. Last week, it was the grace that frees us. And uh, if you weren't here, Hugh Hefner got a mention last week, so you'll have to listen to the uh, podcast. Uh, they're available on our website. Um, very, very racy stuff. The grace that frees today, it's the grace that teaches us or the grace that trains. So will you pray with me, by God's grace, that we would have God's grace as uh, he speaks to us. Give us grace, O Lord, not only to hear your word with our ears, but also to receive it into our hearts and to show it forth in our lives for the glory of your great name. Amen. I want to ask a personal question. What motivates you? What motivates you to do things? What gets you out of bed in the morning? Now, I've been an educator one way or another for about 25 years, and so motivating people to learn is something that keenly interests me. And of course, traditionally, uh, when I was a teacher, we used to talk about the carrot and the stick. We're either motivated to avoid a negative thing or propelled along by something we want, a bit like the farmer who has a stick to beat his donkey and a carrot out the front, carrot and stick. Mostly, at least when I was a teacher, teachers used stick, right? It was stick, not literally, at least not when I was teaching. I wasn't literally stick, but, you know, how else does one teach maths, after all, or English grammar, than by saying, if you don't do this, then you'll be in trouble. I used to teach at Sydney Grammar, and all you used to have to do there at Sydney Grammar was pull out a detention card and wave it around, and the kids would do whatever you said. That was stick motivation. It wasn't really teaching, was it? But there were very few carrots to hand out because the amount of academic prizes available were actually very few. But there's different types of carrot, if you think about it. The educationalists will talk about intrinsic motivation and extrinsic motivation. And extrinsic motivation is when you do something not because of the thing itself, but because of some prize or benefit that you get. So I used to like to do well in English because I liked to beat other people, not because I particularly liked poetry at the time. If I just loved poetry for its own sake, then that would have been an intrinsic motivation. Now, here's the thing. What's the most effective motivation? What's the best way to motivate someone? Well, it's always a positive, carrot-style motivation. And best of all, when you do something simply because you love to do it. You know this if you're an employer or an employee, after all. The best worker is which one? The one who simply loves the job. Not the one who's in it for the money or the one who is afraid of you. The student or the worker who is motivated by fear, simply, what do they do? They just do the minimum to avoid getting into trouble. They watch as the clock ticks over to five o'clock and then they can't see them for dust. The one who's driven by the reward merely does what it takes to get the prize they want and that's it. Once they've got the prize, that's, they've not got any interest in it. Now, as Christians, you and I are called to something very significant. We are called to walk away from sin 
and to live our lives for God. We're called upon to make big changes in our lives. But what's to motivate us? When I think of Christians making big changes, I think of my brother Dave, my younger brother Dave. I've talked about him before and he spoke at a men's dinner we had. Uh, He was in the army and he reached the rank of captain, um, but uh, he was not a happy guy. And uh, he was stationed in Darwin. His wife had left him. His life was basically drinking, fighting and womanising. I mean, he actually used to look for fights as a kind of recreation. And this had begun before his wife left and basically got worse from there. He was an extremely angry guy. Yet one day, he turned his life around completely. The change was extraordinary. And now he's uh, remarried, uh, he's working as a pastor, he's got those things under control. He doesn't, the, the old Dave is gone, the new Dave has arrived. What motivated his change? Now, it's our habit to think that it must have been the thought of God wielding a big stick. That's how we think of God often. We think of him as a rule maker and a lawgiver whose first word went to us whenever we, set, whenever we ask anything is what? It's no, isn't it? Followed by thou shalt not. And he does speak in old-fashioned English, doesn't he? He restricts us. If we were the, like donkeys pulling a cart, he's always, always ready with a stick to whack us on the backside when we get out of line. And this is a massively inaccurate picture of the true God. And it's a childish one too. But, you know, even as adults, we find it really hard to shake it off. Apart from being just plain unchristian and wrong, it produces unmotivated Christians. If we think of God as the stick wielder, how will we approach living for God? We'll do as little as possible to avoid getting whacked. We don't embrace the Christian life wholeheartedly. We just stay out of trouble. Now, the other habit we have is to think of God as giving us the reward of salvation for being good because we've earned it. Like a wage we expect to appear in our bank account every fortnight or every month. We live decently, even exceptionally. We live a good life and God returns the favour with salvation. We get the prize. But again, though that might motivate us a little bit more, the trouble here, apart from it being completely unbiblical and unchristian, is that we are only motivated to do what it takes to earn the reward. We want to know then what's the checklist So we can tick it off and get it done and move on. But this is not how the Christian life works. See, the the engine of the Christian life is grace, not fear or rewards. Grace drives the Christian life. Now, how does it do that? We'll have a look at that text from Titus chapter 2 that we had read to us to page 969. And notice where it has the grace of God in the sequence of events. Does he say, do a bunch of stuff and God will deliver on the goods? God will give you what you earn? Not at all. In fact, the reverse, doesn't he? He says, the grace of God has appeared. The grace of God has already appeared. It's not a prize at the end that we may or may not achieve. We already have it because the man, full of grace and truth, Jesus Jesus Christ, 
has already appeared on earth to clear our names. God's grace, which means his mercy, which comes from his love for us and not because we deserved it, has already been given to us. It's already been displayed to us. It overflows to us in magnificent abundance, drenching us in the mercy of God when we had least right to demand it. We simply have it in Jesus Christ without cost or burden. It means we are not condemned and that we are truly free, the most liberated beings on the planet. Not even death stands against a Christian anymore. Though we still live in a world scarred by sin and death, these have no permanence. These are only temporary realities. And we have it all at what cost? It's free. Grace has brought us salvation. And it's this grace that then trains us or teaches us about the Christian life, about how to live. It's through the grace of God in Jesus Christ that we learn what we should be doing, what we should look like. Well, then how does it do that? And what does it train us for? Well, how do you feel when you receive something amazing that you feel that you didn't deserve? The word that immediately comes to my mind, and I'm sure it did to yours, is, is thankful or gratitude. I feel full of gratitude. I feel grateful. I'm full of thanks to the person who gave the thing to me. And that's how a healthy parent-child relationship works, doesn't it? I, I don't feel like I have to pay back my parents for the school fees, the holidays, or the Christmas parent presents. I mean, can you imagine if you got to 21, and on your 21st birthday party, you were given the key to the house and a party and a bill. It's kind of listed out the school fees. Actually, uh, Simon's going to be 21 very soon. Uh, it's an idea. Now, that would be weird, wouldn't it? I'm just grateful to my parents. I don't repay them. I just love them and I want to please them because they've blessed me. I'm truly grateful to them. I don't move into state and refuse to ever contact them. The grace of God is much the same. Knowing that Jesus Christ died for me while I am still an enemy of God. I'm simply in awe of that. I can only respond with thanks. I've got nothing else to give. But that word thanks is extremely powerful, if you think about it, for two reasons. First of all, to say thanks is extremely personal. It's relational. You can't be truly grateful to your parents, for example, and refuse to ever speak to them again. You want to honour them if you are truly grateful. You want to honour them and love them if you are thankful for them. And if you are not thankful for them, if they had done you great harm, maybe you wouldn't want to speak to them. But if you are thankful to them, you want to be in touch with them. And that's how it works with grace as well. If we're thankful for God's grace, truly thankful, it means we are in relationship with him. We want to honour and love him. We want him to be delighted in us. We want to please him. And secondly, this is the second thing that grace, that thanks, that thanks does, I should say. It's relational. But secondly, it's also the case that when we receive a gift with thanks... We want to use the gift in a way that's fitting, that makes sense, that matches the gift that's been given. Now, if I buy a luxury car, then strip it back and sell it for parts or give it to my teenage son to drive around in, well, I bought the car and me having the car is not an expression of any relationship with the person I brought it from, so I can do what I like with it. But imagine a father comes to a son 
and says, Son, here is my 1964 Aston Martin DB5 manual coupe. It's only done 32,970 kilometres. It's worth $1,490,000. This is an actual car, which I looked up on carsales.com, by the way. But more than that, this is the car, the James Bond car, that I first... I took your mother out in, in, on our first date. It's a very special car. Now, I could sell it, but look, I want you to have it as a gift. You can imagine the son. The son says, thanks, Dad. Wow. And he sounds like he really means it, and he drives the car home. The car's now done 32,972 kilometres. And uh, then what happens? Well, a little while later, the dad comes for a visit, and he can't help noticing that the Aston Martin is nowhere to be seen. He just kind of casually looks around, doesn't see any evidence of it, and he drops into conversation. Uh, have you found a good spot for the old car, son? Oh, yes, says the son. You know, those leather seats are amazing, that the, the condition that that was in. Well, I, I, uh, I, uh, I took the, the rear seat out because it just makes a fantastic dog bed. It's just fantastic. Then I took the grill off and I took it down to the office. I put it in the boardroom so people can look at it. It's, it's a wonderful talking piece. And then, you know, the property we've got up at Bathurst, I, look, I... I drove it up there and because, you know, uh, my teenage son, your grandson, he needs to learn how to drive and I thought, uh, you know, we need a paddock basher for him to just drive around in the paddocks and I thought it'd be great. Thanks so much. Now, of course, that's not how the story would go unless the son was deliberately trying to hurt his dad. The gift of grace, like any other gift, is an expression of relationship. So how we receive and use the gift is an expression of how we value the giver, the relationship that the giver has with us. How does the grace of God train us? It teaches us about God and it brings us into relationship with him. By grace, we call God now our father. We have in the gift he gives to us, not just our salvation, like a lucky door prize. We have him. He's not like the teacher who uses fear to get us working. He's not like the coach who promises us all a trip to McDonald's if we win the grand final. God gives us the blessing of relationship with him. We know he loves us to the point of giving us his son. It was a costly love. And this was what motivated my brother to change his life. In, in the fog of a hangover one Sunday morning, he went to his computer, which my sister had given him. My sister had snuck on some podcasts of some sermons, not mine, onto, the, uh, onto, onto, this, uh, onto this computer. And so he clicked on them and listened to them. And in the words that he heard, he heard the message of God's free grace and forgiveness. And at that stage, he had nothing else. He had nothing else but to depend on that grace. He heard that grace and it has changed his life. What does the grace of God teach us to do? What did it teach my brother to do? 
When I was learning how to play cricket, well, you learn when you're batting with a partner, you might notice that there are two batsmen. If you're not a cricket person, there are nine, uh, there are 11 of the fielding team and uh, two, apparent, apparent, uh, two of the batting team on the field. Apparently the headmaster of Sydney Grammar once saw a game of cricket and he said, this isn't fair, there's only two of our boys out there and 11 of the opposition. Well, when you're, run, when you're batting, you've got a partner and you have to work out how to run between the wickets and you have three calls. What are the three calls that you're taught? Yes. Anyone else? No. And wait. Yes, no, and wait. Well, grace teaches us no, yes, and wait. No, yes, and wait. It trains us. The grace of God trains us to say no to impiety and worldly passions, says Paul. Now, impiety is a very general sort of ye olde word, which means ungodless, un, ungodliness, everything which isn't like God, anything that doesn't kind of permeate with his flavour, doesn't look like him or mesh with him, the things that don't sit well with grace. We get a bit of a sense of what that means by the second word, worldly passions. And what are worldly passions? Well, they're the desires that usually drive us, that usually motivate us, our longings, our desires to do things because we inhabit a world which specialises in these passions, which uses these passions to get us to do things. The world of the market essentially is the world of the worldly passions. Our worldly passions, our worldly passion is to consume stuff and to have stuff. Our worldly passion is the rage and the anger that somehow flashes up and overwhelms us. Our worldly passion is to have power over others. Our worldly passion is a passion for personal significance and fame. Our worldly passion is to have others for our sexual pleasure. It's interesting, you know, how we've made passion a sort of virtue in all cases in our world. We will say in a job interview, you will say this, you probably have said this in a job interview, I'm a passionate person. You have, haven't you? That's because we, we think that being passionate is the... It's the kind of best thing you can be, and we hope that that impresses. But grace teaches us not to be enslaved to our passions. Our passions, our worldly passions, have got us into the mess that grace gets us out of. To receive grace and then give vent to your worldly passions is to show that there's a problem with your understanding of God's free grace. You're using the Aston Martin as a paddock basher. Grace trains us in the opposite. It teaches us to say no. It gives us a bigger perspective. We don't have to say yes to our... We're not the victim of our worldly passions any longer. Because we have grace. And it teaches us to say yes. To what? What does Paul say? He says... It's, it, we, we instead, we put aside our worldly passions and impiety and we go instead for the opposite. Self-control, uprightness or righteousness or justice and godliness. These lives, lives of self-control, of justice and godliness are supposed to mark us out as those who've got grace, who've understood grace, who are full of thanks to the God of grace. We are trained in self-control because we are shown that sin is not our master anymore. Learning self-control doesn't just come from telling ourselves to have it. We don't just kind of wake up in the morning and say, I'm going to have self-control. You know, it's impossible to stop eating ice cream that way. 
You know that doesn't work. We learn self-control, rather, by humbly submitting to grace, by realising what we've been given, the preciousness of the gift we've been given in God's grace. The more we understand the grace of God, the more we know that controlling ourselves is just what needs to be done. It's obvious that we should rein in those destructive passions. We realise how destructive they are. We realise that they're not loving to other people. They're not loving to the gift we have of life in God. And so we take whatever steps we need to control them, which may mean, of course, asking for help. And if you're wrestling with self-control in any of the areas that I've spoken to, it may be that you need to ask for help. Please do ask for help. A breakthrough in self-control might, in fact, come from admitting that you can't do it and asking for someone to walk alongside you in getting that self-control that comes from grace. So there's a no and there's a yes. And then finally, there's a wait. So the grace of God trains us in these things, but also trains us to wait in hope. We're not fighting a losing battle in our war against earthly passions, in our wrestle for self-control. In the grace of God, we have the promise of the glorious return of Jesus Christ, when we will at last see his perfect justice restored. And that's why we can labor on in the present time, even when it's really difficult, or when it seems that we're going to have to miss out on something that our neighbors have. That's why we can persist in our dedication to honoring and pleasing God, because we have the peace of knowing that he will deliver us. Can you imagine if Christians in Australia were fired up by the grace of God, motivated to serve and please God because they understood grace? I have to say, if I'm honest, I think Australian Christians are a pretty unmotivated lot. Oh, sure, the numbers of Christians, people ticking the box on the census are going down, but I don't mean that. I mean even the ones of us who are more apparently active in our faith. I, I think there's plenty of half-hearted Christianity in our nation. So how can we be more motivated to be what we're called to be? How can we here at St. Mark's be transformed by grace to love the world? Our motto statement, to be transformed by grace. How can we do that? How can you do that? Well, you need to develop the habit of thankfulness. You know, secular psychology is waking up to the benefits of thankfulness. I don't know if you've got a kid at school, but uh, my daughters, uh, I notice that they have to keep thankfulness diaries, I believe. And I know the kids at other schools are now keeping thankfulness diaries. They have to write down things that they're grateful for. And this is coming in in various business practices too. This idea that we should be always giving thanks and we should go to gratitude seminars and the whole nine yards. In fact, I was talking to someone after the 8 o'clock service and uh, she's struggling with an ongoing pain issue and the doctor said, if you give thanks, keep a thankfulness diary, it actually has been shown that it, it alleviates the worst effects of pain. It has medical effects. And here's the thing. Remember I said thanks is a relational thing. You can't just thank the universe. You need to know who you are thanking. And here's where we should be all over this. We know who we're thanking. We know what we're thanking him for. We know about the free grace that comes in Jesus Christ and the hope that it brings. So we need to practice thankfulness. 
Maybe the pagan world is, is right here. Maybe the secular psychologists have got a point. You need to develop a habit of regularly thanking God for his blessing. A daily practice of this would be excellent. Making space in your morning before you go to bed for even just a couple of minutes of giving thanks to God for his mercy to you in Jesus Christ and for all the other blessings you have at his hand. And again, the secular psychologists have got a point. Writing it down actually helps. I, I have to say, from my practice of doing this, it has transformed me inwardly. I am so much more appreciative for what I have because of sitting down and actually naming, thanking God for what I do have. The words blessing and thanks should just roll off our tongues. We shouldn't say that we are lucky or fortunate. We should say we are blessed. If we practice giving thanks, we will find that we become habitually thankful. And in that way, God's grace will marinate us so that we are permeated with its flavour. We will allow ourselves to be transformed by it. Grace will become like our personal trainer. And just as a personal trainer will tell you that after just a few weeks at the gym, you'll notice the amazing difference in your body. So I make this promise to you. Giving thanks to God each day will change your life. It will make you a more gracious person. It will give you the qualities that we've talked about uh, this morning, that Paul talks about here. It will motivate you in all things to please your heavenly Father who loves you. You'll be motivated to please him because you'll understand what you have from him. So let's see the transformations flow from our training in grace. Let's see a community of people who are distinctively different. Let's be a community of people who are known by everyone around us for our welcome and our, hospi our hospitality, our generosity and our mutual love for one another. Let's be known for our joy. It's, it's just heartbreaking that Christians are sometimes known for being so jolly joyless and crabby. And yet, if we understand the grace of God, we shall be the most joyous people of all. If we know grace, really know it, then you don't just sit there avoiding trouble. Grace gets you up out of your seat to seek your brother and sister, to love them in an echo of the way that you have been loved. So let's see it. Let's see grace in action, in thankful lives, filled with hope and joy.